Just imagine the sound of cascading silk as a garment of exquisite beauty moves as you move. Your hand tenderly strokes the stunning embroidery, covering parts of this item of dress, feeling both the smoothness of long silk threads used in the satin stitch and the unmistakable texture of couched gold and silver threads, pearls and other rich adornments. You are but one among a number outfitted this way at the Chinese imperial court of the later Ming and Qing dynasties, where the dragon robe certainly came into its own, creating what must have been an utter spectacle of movement, embroidery, colour and design. Dragon robes conjure exotic, mythical images of a colourful past concept of the mysterious Far East, drawing deeply on ancient Chinese culture and symbols, creating exquisitely embroidered garments of magnificent elegance and technical prowess. The mighty dragon robe, or long pao, the everyday dress of emperors or kings of China, Korea and Vietnam, but also worn by courtiers and officials in later Chinese dynasties, are another great example showcasing the use of textiles and embroidery to denote wealth, authority, power and social status. And while they definitely exhibit the Asian aesthetic, there is an influence of the West to be seen in the adoption of some Western techniques and use of synthetic dyes. Yet again, we see the influence of trade and gifts of diplomacy in design, embroidery techniques and even colour. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari expedition leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. The dragon, after which the robe was named, provided the principal pattern for this long, loose garment and is one of the most ancient and easily recognisable symbols of Chinese culture – thought to be a combination of animals including the snake, eagle, tiger and devil, symbolising the natural world and transformation. And it was considered a benevolent, totemic creature associated closely with the sky, clouds and rain, the sustenance of all life, depicted in rondelles, coiled, full-faced or three-quarter view, on its own or in numbers, producing designs of considerable theatre and energy, highly appropriate for the ceremonial attire for rulers, nobility and, eventually, courtiers, becoming synonymous with the great Asian aesthetic. 
The dragon's the highest ranking creature in the Chinese animal hierarchy, and while its origins may be vague, its progenitor can be found recorded on Chinese Neolithic pottery and Bronze Age ritual vessels. The use of dragon symbols on Chinese imperial robes was documented in the Book of Changes, an ancient Chinese divination text among one of the oldest Chinese classics. First adopted by the Tang Dynasty, 618-906 CE, the dragon robe was a symbol of power and honour, overflowing with ancient symbolism. Empress Wu in the year 694 may have begun the tradition of presenting officials above a certain rank with these robes, patterned to denote their station, but also embellished with coiled dragons or deer. Later emperors continued to bestow dragon robes on favoured individuals. Mentions made in Sung Dynastic History 960 to 1279 of its first emperor presenting an imperial dragon robe with coiled dragons worked in pearls to one of his officers. The word imperial suggests these garments were representative of a type worn by the emperor. Furthermore, by the year 1111, dragon patterns were forbidden to all subjects along with brocades of gold wire, much like the sumptuary laws of England, indicating the use of dragons on robes was made the exclusive prerogative of the emperor or empress, or bestowed as marks of special favour by them alone. Even Kublai Khan forbade the wearing of silk or satin woven with the sun, moon, dragons or tigers. He, his brother and their wives were painted wearing dragon robes featuring gold dragons. And these amazing robes reached their peak of popularity during the dynasties of the Ming, 1469-1644 and Qing, 1644-1912. And not surprisingly, it's during these periods that the art of silk embroidery also reached its pinnacle of technical refinement, drawing upon thousands of years of applied development. Late Ming dynasty robes were typically woven with dragon motives, featuring shimmering golden threads, but the Qing tended to create their patterns using meticulously couched golden threads. And the embroidery is a sight to behold, some taking up to two years to complete. A fascinating point of note is the exchange of technique, this time from the west to the east, and it's one we don't often hear spoke, uh, spoken of. The Chinese knew and used the uh, couching technique, but appeared to adopt the concept of couching gold thread through the influence of trade with the West. And as we've seen so many times before, gifts of these robes became not only tokens of imperial favour, desired by the elite of China and other East Asian nations, but also a form of foreign diplomacy. 
Foreign rulers accepted these gifts, even requesting further dragon robes, pointing to China's growing international and political influence, eventually becoming standard costume in the courts of other East Asian nations, namely Korea, Vietnam and Okinawa. Dragon robes also provided the artists in the Korean and Vietnamese royal embroidery studios and textile workshops access to the sophisticated styles and techniques of their Chinese counterparts, enabling them to eventually interpret their own cultural tastes and preferences through their embroidery. For instance, the Korean and Vietnamese embroiderers typically depicted their dragons with a pearl in its mouth whereas the Chinese had their dragons chasing the pool. A small point of separation, but nonetheless interesting. Now, let's try to understand the many faceted systems of design, including colour, pattern and motives, all of which coalesce to form the powerful and elegant East Asian dragon robes. But before I do, uh, delve into those, why were the skirts of the robes split front, rear and at the sides? And the answer is to accommodate riding on horseback. There were six basic pattern types, most of which can be traced back to the Ming period, dependent upon the number and orientation of the dragons, which could be on the middle front, curling back over the left shoulder, on the back, curling forward, on the skirt or the sleeves. And at some stage, the waves with mountains rising behind were moved to the lower part of the robe, giving weight, balance and stunning visual interest to the entire design. Bats with a musical stone and butterflies were sometimes incorporated into designs, bringing further meanings of happiness, good fortune and a wish for long life. And deer were occasionally portrayed for wealth, fish for abundant future. Hierarchy within Chinese aristocracy was represented by the dragon motif and 11 other patterns. The emperor being the only person allowed to wear all 12. Highest nobles, 9, the next level, 7, and the lowest level, 5, all distinguished by their costume decoration. Vietnamese and some Japanese court garments uh, displayed these ancient symbols of authority as well. Only the emperor could wear the five-clawed dragon motive. The other 11 motives represented a symbol for eternal unity of the sun, moon and earth, a sun symbol for heaven and intellectual enlightenment, a fire symbol for brilliance of spirit and intellect, a symbol for the yin principle of passiveness, mountains symbolising earth and unity of the cosmos, bronze cups a sacrifice for filial piety, an axe representing the emperor's power to punish, a water weed symbolising purity and the spirit of water, grain symbolising the emperor's responsibility to feed his people, literary refinement and education symbolised by a pheasant, and lastly, the foo symbol of happiness. And the reason for issuing special clothes from the court was to distinguish nobles from commoners, encouraging reward through promotion. 
colour was of huge significance in dragon robes, reflecting not only status but also the occasion for which the garment was being worn and was made up of the five traditional colours of yellow, red, blue, black and white. In 1405, yellow was officially reserved for Chinese emperors and by 1683, this was broadened to include tawny yellow and blue. Korean kings wore red or dark blue and by the end of the 19th century, they adopted yellow dragon robes, signifying their renunciation of China's prominent role in both trade and foreign relations. Red is a happy and auspicious colour in Chinese culture and was the dynastic colour of the Ming, with red robes featuring four dragon medallions worked in gold, able to be worn by the heir apparent, first and second degree princes and sons of first degree princes. Blue and blue-black were popular colours for official robes, especially as the emperor was required to wear blue robes during periods of fasting. Black robes were worn by the eunuchs, who stood on either side of the emperor as his principal attendants. Other colours, such as pink, violet and green, were also used. The seasonal choice of fabric for dragon robes included lengths of silk in either plain weave, damask, satin or gauze, with loom widths during the dynastic period limited to around three feet. The design was transferred onto the fabric using a brush or ink stick, but the designer also, he must have actually, had a good eye to be able to visualise the finished design as a whole on the numerous unjoined pieces. Fabric panels would be stretched onto separate frames, then a team of embroiderers would begin the long, laborious task of stitching the secondary parts of the design. Upon completion of this embroidery, the panels would have been removed from the frames and the row pieces joined, carefully matching the left and right halves so that the design matched perfectly. The fabric would then have been re-stretched onto the frames so that the dragon design could have been embroidered over the central seam. Time-consuming but clever, as no one would want to see a seam running through the centre of embroidery. Chinese embroiderers liked working with gold threads to create their designs, and during the Ming and Qing periods, several types were available to them, from solid gold wire-like threads to flat thread cut from sheets of gold or silk threads wrapped with gold foil or gilt paper. As some gold-wrapped threads frayed easily if passed through fabric, they were arranged on top of the fabric and couched into place, a technique popularised during the Tang period through trade and contact with the West. One method of applying gold thread for the dragon scales involved couching two threads at a time, creating a shimmering dimensional effect. But sometimes silk or metallic threads were couched over hemp cords to create a sculptural effect in a technique called cord padded couching, one I've not seen before, a a dimensional effect only able to be achieved through hand embroidery. 
It must have created a wonderful effect as light hit the sculpted silk or metal threads. And from an image of cord padded couching, the vertical lines of cords were placed behind the stitching, then covered by horizontal couching. It's nothing like underside couching. The embroidery is worked on the front, then the lines of padded couching are added from the back. It's a fascinating technique. Long floats of untwisted silk floss were used to create satin stitch, producing soft patterns with a velvet-like finish. Shimmering peacock or kingfisher feather-wrapped threads and seed pearls were also used. The time-consuming and difficult stitch, the Peking Knot, was also sometimes included in small sections of a design. In the later part of the 18th century, cooler, wide-meshed gauze was often used for summer robes, offering the opportunity for counted thread work, including tent and Florentine stitch. These popular stitches may have been introduced from the West. And one of the last truly magnificent imperial dragon robes was made for the 1880 marriage of the last empress, embroidered with pearls and coral. Severely damaged cultural textile relics were unearthed from the eastern uh, tombs of the Qing dynasty in 2013 and restored over the last eight years, including textiles owned by the Emperor Dowager Siji, the last Qing Empress, becoming part of an exhibition, Relics of the Harem. The textiles included gowns, jackets, shoes, hats, pillows, quilts, purses and mattresses. Empress Dowager Siji organised the three layers of clothing she would wear when buried with the outermost piece being a female dragon robe embroidered with five bats and flat gold Buddha characters on yellow river silk twill fabric with a tufted moire lining. Gold threads were used to embroider nine dragon patterns and 31 Buddha characters. The front and back of the robe were embroidered with the 12 chapters pattern, actually 12 kinds of auspicious patterns. Siji ruled as the supreme ruler of the late Qing government, so was entitled to wear a dragon robe. She was a devout Buddhist and was found with Buddhist symbology embroidered all over the robes in silver thread that has since oxidised and blackened. Originally, each thread end was finished with a large pearl. The second layer, a female robe of snow green satin, was embroidered with more than 370 Chinese characters using flat gold and pearls. Siji was laid on an embroidered quilt with delicate lotus patterns and covered by sutras quilt measuring 2.9 metres long by 2.7 metres wide, containing more than 25,000 Chinese characters the 820 pearls adorning the quilt have since been lost. And she was wearing lotus-embroidered shoes. 
Interestingly, researchers discovered the pigments used in the embroidery threads for blue water ripples and orange lotus were both synthetic dyes imported from Europe and introduced into China at the end of the 19th century. The exhibition included a light blue gauze fabric embroidered with wisteria and a gold embroidered longevity pattern bordered with butterfly lace. Lace was introduced to China sometime in the 1860s, becoming a fashion trend for women's wear of that time. Personally, I tend to think China exerted such influence on things like dyes, the production of silk and embroidery techniques. But it should be remembered that technical innovation was very much a two-way street with the West especially after the Boxer Revolution, when the emperors made efforts to understand Western technologies and achievements. The hierarchy of dragon robes is both complex and intricate. This episode has simply been an overview to wet the epitaph because the design and application of technique is what's fascinating. These garments are brimming with drama, colour, Asian myth and culture and they must have been a sight to behold in the Forbidden City and beyond. And it's that influence of such supremely remarkable garments that featured in a 2015 exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art entitled China Through the Looking Glass, exploring the impact of Chinese aesthetics on Western fashion juxtaposed with uh, Chinese costumes, paintings, porcelains and other art reflecting enchanting Chinese imagery. There's a great video clip of this exhibition available on YouTube. Leslie Camhe wrote, uh, wrote this for Vogue in 2015. Thinking back on his childhood in the Forbidden City, Pu Yi, the last emperor of China, remembered yellow. The glazed roof tiles glinting in the morning light, the silken cushions of the sedan chairs that carried him. The porcelain upon which his elaborate meals were served, even the linings of his embroidered robes and hats, all shared the brilliant hue, considered auspicious and reserved for the imperial household's exclusive use. And one of the boy emperor's robes, a splendid fragment of a lost world, was on special loan from Beijing's Palace Museum and greeted visitors to the China Through the Looking Glass exhibition. And also uniquely Asian, but far more relevant, drawing upon her Chinese cultural heritage is Chinese designer Guo Pei who was invited to become a guest member of the Chambray Syndicale de la Haute Couture and in 2016 was listed in Time as one of the world's most influential people. Look at her earlier work to see the grandeur, richness and opulence of ancient China, fostered by memories and stories told to her as a child by her grandmother of the colour and beauty of the richly embroidered court garments.
The theatre and drama of the fashion catwalk, the innovative use of heritage and age-old mythology, along with the application, uh, application of nearly forgotten embroidery and embellishment techniques, is magnificently portrayed by Guao Pei. Dragon robes are still casting their net of influence and inspiration, but it's up to us what we make of them. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I really value your time. Stitch Safari's now reached over 5,000 downloads, and that's all thanks to you. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Wilt Magazine and listed in the top five textile industry podcasts as at September 2021 by Feedspot. I'm extremely grateful. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's all so fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over. Till the next episode of Stitch Safari. Bye for now.